Thank you for leading us in worship and all who were involved. Uh, it was about, I would say, three months ago that I had laid out some of these elements for the service, and uh, it is now a blessing to be able to see how well they uh, fit our time, uh, particularly the scripture reading from Second Samuel 24, and David uh, pleading with the Lord for relief from this plague that was upon his people, mostly because of his own doing, uh, but yet he threw himself upon the mercy of God. And uh, just so thankful, too, for Eric's uh, portion of reading, too, and, and, and prayer, and focusing our hearts upon a God of mercy. And uh, just so thankful for the comfort that comes to us through the gift of the Holy Spirit during these seasons and moments. And our text this morning is coming from Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to read the text and uh, even elements of the friendship and the brotherhood of Christ uh, that we see in that last hymn that we sang are present in this text. And so I encourage you to follow along with me, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, uh, through the end of the chapter, verse 18, is our text this morning. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 reads, For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying... I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he is made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and high, a faithful high priest in the service of God." to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For he, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can call upon you, we can, we can lean upon you, just as your servant John leaned upon you at the Last Supper. We can draw close to you and know that you hear us when we are overburdened, when we are tempted to despair, when we are tempted to walk away in the midst of trial, in the midst of persecution. Help us, Lord, in this text to be able to find comfort. Help us to find courage that we might have a deeper faith because of any suffering that you might lead us through. Help us to have the confidence that as a good shepherd, you are always with us. 
and you will lead us through those valleys, but you will bring us up again into pleasant grazing pastures. Help us to know, Lord, that no matter what may come, may, no matter what may befall us, that we have so, so much in our relationship with you. So help us, Father, as we look at this text. Clear away the burdens, the thoughts, the backstory that's going on around us. And may we focus on you now in these few moments. In your name we pray. Amen. So in this text, we have elements of persecution on display, suffering. We have a sufficient Savior. And it reminds us that the reality of our North American Christianity has uh, been an anomaly. It has been a very unique thing that for the past 200 years at least, Christians in North America have been free from persecution. The Bible is actually very clear that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The apostles themselves in the early church felt the flames of persecution and their own countrymen turned against them. And for nearly 300 years, Christians have been underneath of persecution. In fact, 11 of the first 12 apostles died as martyrs. Christians, though, even though America has been an anomaly, a a different thing, Christians throughout all of the world have experienced persecution. And so... I think it's helpful for us to realize that uh, while physical persecution could be absent from our existence, there still are resistance factors that we still have as Christians, even in North America. Um, We truly should probably reserve the word persecution for those who are really underneath of the weight of suffering and hardship. Um, but there is a sense in which there can be a, a, a pressure, a trial placed upon us in our own context. Um, there can be a fear, for example, a fear of not speaking boldly about your faith in a public context, and that in itself is a form of persecution a suffering where we we feel that pressure of trial upon us and how we respond in those moments is, in fact, an aspect of faith itself. Now, it may also sound a little bit cute this morning to talk about how that uh, busyness can be a potential form of suffering, a a self-imposed form of suffering here in our North American culture. I say cute because all of our schedules have been displaced recently. But maybe it's a good time for us in this moment of pause and reflection to take a stock and evaluate how much we allow into our lives that we are in a way persecuting ourselves voluntarily. And uh, we need to consider that even a prolonged absence from the fellowship of believers is a form of persecution as well. As you know, our state governor has uh, recommended but not mandated that congregations participate in the shutdown, and we voluntarily did so. 
And while it's not necessarily an adversarial kind of persecution, nevertheless, it is a, a trial that we're participating in. And Christians need, though, the spiritual discipline of coming together. And what I'm trying to do here as I set up this passage is to remind us that we, we can experience forms of persecution, and they're not always the kind that we immediately think of in another country in which there is perhaps a, like a communist regime uh, holding back people from worship. All of our society is organized against us to try to conspire to prevent us from worshiping Christ as a body. Now, I want to give hope here. Any pressure that would might encourage us to walk away from Christ could actually be used by God to fuel our desire to draw closer to Christ. That's a gospel hope. The suffering that we experience in the world is a direct result of the catastrophic fall of humanity into sin. But God is sovereign and he can overrule these things and use these negative things to create positive ends so that we might draw closer to him. And so I'm going to open up, Lord willing, this text for our hearing this morning and to show you how that Jesus leads his people toward perfection through suffering. Jesus leads his people toward perfection through suffering. And our first major uh, point, of, point of contact with the text comes in verse 10. Verse 10, I want us to see that Jesus, Jesus is qualified to lead his people. He is qualified to be a savior for his people by his own suffering. Jesus is qualified to lead his people. He is qualified to be a savior. Now, let's look at verse 10, and I need you to see a few actors, divine actors, and understand who is referring to who this morning. Uh, who does, uh, for whom and by whom all things exist, refer to? That refers, I believe, to God the Father. Who, perfecting work, occurs through the Son. The Son is the one who is the founder of salvation and is made perfect himself by suffering. So what we're seeing here is that the Father who, who is above all things and by whom all things exist is allowing his own Son to suffer to make him perfect and able to then lead others who are suffering. Um, there is another actor that's a little bit missing, and that is the Holy Spirit. Uh, you don't see it in this text, but when we get to chapter 9, verse 14, which is going to be a while before we get there, so I'm going to mention it. In Hebrews 9, 14, the Holy Spirit is the actor, the agent of perfection in the sacrifice of Christ, explicitly described. And so, since we're not going to get there, I'm just going to mention that we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as actors in the divine atonement. Now that we've identified the divine actors, we need to note that the author concludes here that the based upon God's action through the Son, he says it was fitting. See in verse 10? It was fitting 
that God the Father should make the founder of our faith to come to perfection. It was fitting. It was fitting. Appropriate. You know, we might not feel like this would be a debated item, but the truth is there are many people who would say that it was not appropriate for God to allow his son to suffer. God being God, shouldn't he just go ahead and forgive everyone rather than making his own son suffer to create the means for which forgiveness could be procured? And there are a lot of people who would suggest that they would prefer another type of representation of God. In fact, some people will say, uh, you know, I like to think of God as this. And that really doesn't do any good. Because really what we're hearing is what they think about God rather than what God has said about himself. It is fitting for the Son of God to suffer in human flesh. God has ordained it to be so. Now, in this text, in the text previously, in verse 9, we need to back up for a moment and read because sometimes people will say, well, why don't we just stop with verse 9 and, go, and not go on to verse 10? Because in verse 9, we read this, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. There are some people who would prefer that God in his forgiving nature would not even cause his son to die, but that he would just go ahead and forgive everyone. And they would not necessarily want to move on to verse 9. And what I'm describing here is a very progressive uh, doctrine, or, or heresy rather, excuse me, a heresy called universalism, in which... It is a second century heresy that comes around every so often and people just want to think of God as being a grandfatherly type of being in the sky who, who then just condones and extends forgiveness to all. However, in this text, we need to recognize that Jesus suffered and God saw that it was fitting for him to suffer. It was fitting, and I want to see in verse 10, to bring many sons to glory. Do you see that in verse 10? And bringing many sons to glory. The word many here refers to a large group, but it does not mean all. And so it's important for us to understand that this is an inclusive description of God's saving atonement. But it is, nevertheless, not inclusive of all. I want to just, I know that this may seem labored this morning, but we need to understand what's being said here in this text and what's not being said in this text. The root of universalism is a distortion, actually, of the character of God. People don't want to allow God to display his perfect justice and his perfect mercy at the same time. Universalism says God cannot be just because he cannot be just because he 
doesn't allow his mercy to extend. But reality is, is that God is being merciful and also being just at the very same time. Universalism also doesn't allow for the biblical understanding of the freedom of the will. In every way, Jesus was qualified to be a savior for his people because he suffered. And at the same time in his suffering, he allows people to respond to his atoning sacrifice. There will be people who will respond and there will be people who will not respond. And in this text, we need to understand that there is also disagreement among brothers on a text like this. I would not call anyone who would hold a differing opinion on this a heretic because there is a discussion within Christian circles as to what does this mean? What is this? Who is this referring to? To what extent is Jesus' blood sacrifice? What, what, how far does it go? And in this text, I guess another way to ask this question is for whom did Christ die? This is a question I, earlier in a warning sermon, I talked about how that there are uh, different viewpoints on the perseverance of saints. And though, so here I want us to look at this and see two different perspectives on this text, but allow the text to speak for itself. The first, I would say, position is a Calvinistic position. And sometimes it is called particular redemption or limited atonement. And very briefly, I've defined this so you understand the term. It is that Christ's redeeming work was intended to save the elect only and actually secured salvation for them. That is a a very brief definition of this viewpoint. Um, While not limited to the groups I'm about to mention, um, it does crop up in other places. Um, Particularly, this is characterized in the Dutch Reformed tradition. Uh, Reformed Baptists or Presbyterian denominations will often hold this tenet in their articles of faith. Often, that as this question is being pondered, people will ask uh, or make the observation that the extent of the atonement is conditioned upon the intent of the atonement. And so, in other words, what is being communicated, there's a desire to safeguard the sovereignty of God of individual salvation from start to finish. Now, that is a very brief snapshot of that position, and there are variations within that understanding. The other position, which is on the extreme other pole, is that of the Arminian position, And so instead of calling it a particular redemption, they call it a universal redemption, or sometimes it's called general atonement. And very briefly, this this is referring to um, Christ's redeeming work is made possible for everyone to be saved, but did not actually secure the salvation for anyone. And so this is a position that's popularly held by the Mennonite tradition, the Amish tradition. And the goal in this is to safeguard the philosophical principle of human freedom and human responsibility. Now, I can't go much more than that on a Sunday morning. That's, that's about as far as I can go. But what I can say 
is that I mentioned earlier that the doctrines of grace ought not be areas of separation. While there are some aspects of these doctrines which are dangerous, some are more tolerable, and I mentioned that there is a spectrum of understanding within conservative evangelicals who love and value the scriptures. Do you see why this matters in this text? Because we have Jesus' death being described as for everyone. But yet in verse 10, we also see a limiting factor that many, many sons will be brought to glory. Not all will be sons, but many sons will be brought to glory. I want us to note the charitableness that John Wesley, uh, for example, was a revivalist in the Arminian tendency. George Whitfield was a revivalist in the Calvinistic tendency. And regardless of where one is on the spectrum, we need to, in the words of Simon, uh, Charles Simeon, excuse me, we need to never speak more or less than we believe that the mind of the Spirit in a particular passage is expounding for us. The author here was actually not intending to set up a side on the matter of the Calvinist position or the Arminian position. Certainly, people will come to it with a way of looking at it. But what is important for us to see is that Paul here is describing the, eth- the um, sufficiency of Jesus' atonement. In verse 9, Paul is telling us that Jesus' death was sufficient for the whole world. It was sufficient, yet, evidently, the efficiency of Jesus' death is necessarily demonstrated in those who respond to the gospel itself. In verse uh, 10, we see it will create many sons. And so helpful, I hope, this discussion was for us, although perhaps a little bit distracting from the overall sense is that Jesus being qualified An important discussion nonetheless. But Jesus is qualified to be a savior because he tasted death for everyone. There was a sense in which his atonement was sufficient for all. I have marked on the text, and I'm going to skip for time here this morning, um, but a couple of additional cross-references that you can chase down where the word many is used on purpose. The word many is used several times in Mark chapter 10, Mark 26, and Isaiah 53, in each of these times, there is a very clear reference to uh, the many uh, being accounted as righteous, and he bore the sins of, of many. And so in this context, Paul is recognizing that Jesus is, yes, a sufficient Savior for the world. He is qualified to be a Savior for his people. And yet, it's important to recognize that it will be efficient for those who respond and believe the gospel. We're going to get to, in chapter 3, specific verse references that talk about the need to hold on to our confession of faith from the beginning. And so that implies that his sufficiency is efficient for those who believe and respond to the gospel. So to answer all of the objectors, yes, Jesus is qualified. He can lead his people. He's qualified to be a savior, and Jesus doesn't abandon his people. 
He's not going to abandon us either. And this is the applicational point of his qualification, that he should bring many sons to glory, to be the founder of their salvation and make them perfect through suffering. Jesus is qualified. And it draws the, the importance to how when we are suffering, the response of the heart is not to run away from him. We ought to be running to him rather than away from him. We may have financial disparities that occur in the next while. We may have ruin. Disease may stand at our doorstep. Bodily pain may increase, but really what matters does not change. Jesus never changes. He is the one who endured all of the torment and the horrors of the cross, and he did it lovingly because he did it for us. Jesus is qualified to lead his people. Let's move on to the second point here, verses 11 to 16. And we're going to move just a little bit quicker now. Uh, In verses 11 to 16, we're going to see how that Jesus has a uh, solidarity with his people. He's one with us through his humanity. He is one with us through his humanity. In verse 11, uh, the writer is exploring God's purposes to bring his people to perfection. And he makes this remarkable claim. He, he, he makes this claim in verse 11. He says, For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. Some translations say they're, they're of one family. Of one source. That's a pretty remarkable statement about Jesus and humanity. But how does this deepen our understanding that Jesus is capable of leading us towards perfection through suffering? Well, the reality is because Jesus took on human flesh, he himself joined with those he was saving. In other words, he demonstrated a commitment, a solidarity to be with us. Now, I have worked manufacturing, and I know what it's like to work on an assembly line. I also know that uh, no matter how good your workplace, there is always this tendency to create a distance between management and those on the line. Uh, that tendency is due to the corruption of sin within all of us. We get, you know, distrustful of, of decisions that are made on our behalf. And this tendency uh, often fuels division rather than a unity. Um, how, how do these kinds of things get overcome? Well, I was always encouraged at times to see management interacting with the labor. Management and even the president of the organization would come and mingle with the workers on the line. That helped build solidarity between management and the worker. In England, it has been a tradition in the royalty to each of their offspring to select a branch of service to to train and potentially fight with. 
Uh, some of the, uh, the offspring have joined uh, some of the, the Navy or, or, the, or the Army and that sort of thing. And nevertheless, I, I don't think they ever were necessarily on the front lines. At least they had a sense in which they were participating in the agony of training that the others were experiencing. And what I'm using these as illustrations, that God, the sovereign of all the universe, came, as it will, and he, he kind of got on the assembly line with us. He, he, got, he went right to the very front of military engagement for us. And he did that in the person of Jesus. And so what we're seeing here is now a very bold claim Jesus entered into and became uh, solidarity with us. And very quickly, he gives us scriptural support for this. Um, I'm not going to take time to develop every one of these biblical texts that are here. And uh, in the first quotation, I I hope if you have a, a modern translation, sometimes you will see them indented. And there are three in quick succession. The first quote comes from Psalm 22. And this is a very well-known prophetic psalm. And many of the details in that psalm relate to Christ's suffering on the cross. And in that psalm, uh, we, we, we read these words, I will tell your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And there's this hopefulness that after he dies, that he will then return and be resurrected and be able to sing with his brothers again. We move to the next quotation in second samuel 22 verse 2 is the where this this comes it's a psalm of david at the end of his life and and uh, it's an expression of his trust in god to deliver him from all the experiences that he has to face and we know that this is being applied to jesus as a greater david jesus is the greater david who encapsulates trust in his heavenly father for us as he's going through the agonies of the cross and separation in hell for three days the third reference refers to isaiah 8 verse 18 in which it's to show that there was a greater prophet than isaiah present um isaiah had children who were uh born by natural means and their names were symbols of coming judgments that were going to come upon the nation of israel and jesus on the other hand is born of a virgin and his offspring are symbols of god's grace and mercy to create many offspring and so these words are taken to show that there is a greater that is now among us jesus it says, Behold, I and the children that God has given to me. These scriptural supports are given to make that claim of brotherhood and having uh, offspring. And so the writer then moves in verses 14 to 16 to paint a heroic storyline on the basis of the scripture. Um, there's a kind of a neat little transition here. If you are into writing and underlining key words in your Bible, you will see that there is repetition of key words, and there's like a chain that moves from beginning of verse uh, 11 all the way through verse 16. You'll see that uh, he's not ashamed to call them brothers. And then he quotes a scripture reference about brothers. And then he moves to trust, which is unique. But then he talks about children. 
in the next quotation. And then verse 14, then he talks about the children again, sharing in flesh and blood. And then he begins to talk about death. And that death becomes a moving, a moving theme. And it's conquest over death that's being described in these verses. And so verse 14, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, and this is the heroic story, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. What's beautiful about this is that there's a, large, a huge similarity in the story of Jesus and the story of David and Goliath. By making so many references to David, the writer here is saying, look, that story about David overcoming Goliath and the enemies of God is but a little picture of the greater David who is going to come and defeat not Goliath, but the devil himself and overcome. And it's a beautiful application. So often we look at the David story and we say, hey, we need to be a David. The reality is we are actually nothing like the David. We are the Israelites who are panicking in their tents, overcome with the fear of death. But Jesus entered into our story to overcome death so that we not have to fear it anymore. We don't have to fear the Philistines. We don't have to fear death itself anymore. Jesus didn't come to help angels, it says. Jesus came to help the sons of Abraham. And we are his spiritual sons if we have put our faith and trust in him. We're part of the family of God. And so as this, this, he uses scripture, he uses the heroic storyline to describe what he's doing and why he can be, uh, claims solidarity. But this all sets us up, and I'm not going to fully develop this this week. This is going to become the, the pattern for the next few weeks, is that Jesus is able to sympath, be a sympathetic high priest because of his suffering. What's beautiful is, Jesus is able to lead his people because he himself has suffered. He is able to be a sympathetic high priest. Good leadership does not avoid suffering. When we have someone in the trenches who knows what it means to suffer, we're in a much better place to to follow along. We need to believe that the sufferings were God's way of creating a deeper faith. And Jesus leads his people towards perfection through suffering. Suffering has a way of creating a sympathetic capacity within people. That's what's communicated here in verse 17. Read with me, it says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and high priest in the service of God. 
to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Suffering has a way of creating, though, a capacity to be sympathetic. You know that Christians who suffer are more able to forgive others. They're more able to potentially be like Jesus. During the Roman persecution, first couple centuries of the church, there were many Christians who suffered because they wouldn't give in to the pagan gods. They wouldn't offer sacrifice before the image of Caesar. They, they wouldn't give up the scriptures, the holy scriptures. They, would, they wouldn't voluntarily do that, and so they suffered. Now, a good number of these people, they were abused, but they escaped death. And when the suffering went away, these people who had endured suffering were thought highly of. They were considered to be almost like martyrs, even though they had not died. They were given a nickname. They were called the Church of the Martyrs. But there were also other Christians within the community who had not suffered nearly as much, maybe because of the people that they knew, the people that they could talk to, the influence that they may have had with local officials. But something remarkable occurred after the persecution because there were some who actually bowed the knee to Caesar. There were some Christians who who walked away. Who do you think was more ready to forgive and to restore the ones who had walked away? It was the Christians who had suffered, who were most likely to forgive those who were weak. This is what verse 18 says. For because he himself suffered when tempted... He's able to help those who are being tempted. He's able to help those who are tempted because he knows the pain. And he's sympathetic. Hebrews 4 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are yet without sin... Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Although he was perfect and without sin, he was like the church of the martyrs. He didn't compromise. It didn't create a legalism within his soul. Instead, what it did, it created a sympathy for the weak and the suffering. And in your personal struggle, you may have a struggle against sin. And you may fall headlong into sin. But Jesus does not condemn his children. Jesus calls them to come back and walk closer to him. Jesus is like those within the church of the martyrs. He was sympathetic because he had endured suffering. In a similar regard, when we suffer for righteousness, even imperfectly, our faith in Christ is growing and our capacity to love others who are weak ought to be growing as well. 
Now, I know that the trial that we are now experiencing as a church is an exile of another kind. But I also know that it's doing a good work within all of us to prepare us to be able to be sympathetic with the weak. I also know that in our absence from one another and those that we love, God is doing a work within us to produce endurance, a capacity to love one another. And so rather than succumbing to sin, let us instead draw near. And if we have succumbed to sin, let us also draw near. The invitation is broad. It is wide to return and draw closer to Christ. He is truly qualified. He stands in solidarity with us. And he is sympathetic. Jesus leads his people toward perfection through suffering. Let's pray. Our gracious Lord, thank you that we can meditate on these truths in this text. And I pray, Father, that the time that was spent here would be helpful to draw us closer to you. Help us to remember how sympathetic you truly are. And that when we sin, that we would remember the sweet words of Scripture It says that there is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. Help us, help that spur us on to greater devotion and display of love for you. And we ask for your Holy Spirit to be our comforter this week. In your name we pray, amen. This time I'm going to have Jeremy come to the platform and give a couple of announcements and then a prayer of benediction.